Dark spruce forests frowned on either side the frozen waterway. The trees had been stripped by a recent wind of their white covering of frost, and they seemed to lean towards each other, black and ominous, in the fading light. A vast silence reigned over the land. The land itself was a desolation, lifeless, without movement, so lone and cold that the spirit of it was not even that of sadness. There was a hint in it of laughter, but of a laughter more terrible than any sadness. A laughter that was mirthless as the smile of the Sphinx. A laughter cold as a frost and partaking of the grimness of infallibility. It was the masterful and incommunicable wisdom of eternity, laughing at the futility of life and the effort of life. It was the wild. The savage, frozen-hearted, Northland wild. Hello everyone and welcome to the Lycos Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Marcy, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Matt. Hello, Matt. Good morning, Trevor. That quote that I just read, it it did not come from the book that we're covering today as per usual, but it does such an excellent job of setting the context for our discussion, and it's from White Fang by Jack London, and themes of Jack London are woven throughout this entire conversation, so I felt like it was appropriate. Today... The book we are going to talk about is Into the Wild by John Krakauer. It seems almost impossible that you wouldn't be, but just in case you aren't familiar with this book, it tells the true story of a young man named Chris McCandless, who vagabonded his way through the U.S. after graduating college and was found in an abandoned bus, dead, in the middle of Alaska two years later. Matt, why don't you give us your background with the book? When we talked about reading this book... Because we talked about reading this book from the very beginning of talking about doing this podcast. It was on the top five list. I went and found my old copy. And I opened it up and inscribed in the uh, the inner jacket is my name and the freshman room that I lived in at UVM. I've had this book since 2001. I think 2000. I've read it three or four times since. And I have to say... When I was 17, 18 years old, I think that I had a a stronger connection, a more emotional connection to the book because I felt like I was half a paycheck and a tank of gas away from just slipping into the wind. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not even half a paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) This book was one that for me had always been on the periphery. I, I knew about it. I knew it was something that I should probably read, but I, I hadn't really gotten around to it. This is when I was maybe 19, 20 years old. And then I saw the movie, Into the Wild. That was the movie that was directed by Sean Penn. And the movie itself was very impactful. I thought it was an incredible piece of cinema. So I was like, okay, well, it's time that I actually settled down and read this book. And then the book just drove the nails right home. Especially at that time, yeah, I think I was probably about 20, 21 when I read this book for the very first time. I could not have ident- I could not have identified with the themes in it more strongly. And I think this is one of the reasons that this book has such perennial fascination, especially for young people that enjoy the outdoors and feel like they would like to go and, as the title of the book says, get out into the wild. There are so many recurring themes socially in this book, so many important topics that you know, we're still talking about it 20 years later. This was in 1992 that this happened. It's still debated. People still talk about this. People in Healy, Alaska, which is nearby the area where Chris McCandless' body was found, they still 
deal with people that come up into the wilderness in their area to seek out the place where Chris McCandless died. People still go to the bus. People if, still go to the bus. If you look up pictures of the bus or of Chris McCandless online, you can't help but find a ton of photos of people sitting in a lawn chair it, with their legs crossed in the same way, standing in front of the bus. It, it's kind of an iconic photo that you'll see if you if you look at the book or if you do any research into the book. And it's Chris McCandless with a shag of hair, a big old beard, looking rather gaunt <laughs> in kind of a, a lumberjack plaid shirt and with his legs crossed with a just a shit-eating grin on his face. Oh, super shit-eating grin. Seems... Cheshire cat even. <laughs> just ear to ear. And there, there's a lot of pictures of people kind of recreating that. Sitting in a chair, legs crossed, big smile. I think people are still trying to connect with that experience. It's very easy to look at this from purely the romantics perspective and forget the portion that is truly a, a cautionary tale. It's that is all too tragic and all too human. I think that that's one of the interesting things about this topic is how polarizing it is. Because there are basically two camps of thought as far as Chris McCandless goes. There's the traditional story that he is a selfish, arrogant, naive 20-something that got himself killed through his own negligence, or he's a modern folk hero. I think I have wrestled myself with looking at him from both perspectives. Oh, for sure. It. I think that when I was 17 or 18, it was only the latter. And now that, you know, looking back at youth through the prism of time <laughs> uh, with my own family and thinking about the kind of responsibilities that you have to your family and beyond to yourself. And I think it's it's more difficult to look at him without something of a, a touch of selfishness. Well, I appreciate now having a little more perspective to be able to see him not just as that that folklore hero because I feel that I get a much better a much more rounded out picture of of the situation of the circumstances of who he was of some of the mistakes that he made but still I come away with these important lessons and every time I come to this book every time I think about this story it is just as powerful something that I think helps for me is that the the reporting John Krakauer's reporting he writes like a journalist. Yeah. And he gets into some wonderful details. But I think to a certain degree now, again, lo- looking at it with a little bit more life experience, it's easier to to pick out the kind of journalistic points, pick out the, the portions of the story, the how, the when, the what, and to understand how that also plays into you know what, what made Chris McCandless. And I think it's important to note right here at the outset that I didn't know Chris McCandless. You didn't know Chris McCandless. I kind of feel like I did. (laughs) We feel kinship with him, but that's not the same as knowing the man. And I think that that's a point that we're going to need to discuss as, as we get further along into this book, where you can feel a kinship with somebody, but the truth is you really end up projecting yourself onto them. You project yourself onto their story. And I just wanted to acknowledge that up front, that any opinions that we have or personal observations that that we might make about him or his family or the situation in general, they're pure conjecture. I don't pretend to know the thoughts of dead men. The basic elements of this story could be debated ad nauseum, and, and they have been 
And so we're really going to focus on three things here today. We're going to focus on the questions of who was Chris McCandless? Why did he die? And why do we care? Because I think that those are the three core questions that, one, are most important in this story, and two, keep bringing us back. Because as we'll find out, the story of why Chris McCandless died is just as important as the story of what he did while he was alive. So, let's get started. I really like this description of Chris McCandless. It's from a friend of his named Westerberg. And I think that it does a great job of describing him not only physically, but also what it must have been like to interact with him. He says, McCandless was smallish with the hard, stringy physique of an itinerant laborer. There was something arresting about the youngster's eyes. Dark and emotive, they suggested a trace of exotic blood in his heritage, Greek maybe, or Chippewa, and conveyed a vulnerability that made Westerberg want to take the kid under his wing. He had the kind of sensitive good looks that women made a big fuss over. His face had a strange elasticity. It would be slack and expressionless one minute, only to twist suddenly into a gaping oversized grin that distorted his features and exposed a mouthful of horsey teeth. He was nearsighted and wore steel-rimmed glasses. He looked hungry. You could tell right away that Alex was intelligent. He read a lot, used a lot of big words. Sometimes he tried too hard to make sense of the world, to figure out why people were bad to each other so often. A couple of times I tried to tell him it was a mistake to get too deep into that kind of stuff, but Alex got stuck on things. He always had to know the absolute right answer before he could go on to the next thing. And that's something that I wanted to comment on right there, that getting stuck on things and always want to know the absolute right answer. I think as you read more about Chris McCandless, you come to understand that he had this very dichotomous way of thinking. In his head, things were very black and white, or at least that's how it that's how it seems that he perceived the world in terms of what was right and what was wrong. And those sort of absolutist principles that he applied may have, in fact, contributed to his adopting that ascetic mindset of trying to do things the absolute hardest way, because only in hard labor can there be reward, or so it would seem. He espouses the thoughts of a lot of kind of traditional philosophers, and he almost more like modern philosophers, I guess, loves himself some Tolstoy. And I think he almost feels like the brutal absolutes in, in life are the only things that can be true. He sees a lot of black, a lot of white. He does not allow himself much gray. And I Again, this is something that I identify with strongly in retrospect, where I think of myself at his age at 19, 20 years old, probably absolutely how I saw the world. Very, very stark in terms of what I thought was right, what I thought was wrong. And and yeah, not much room for gray. And I think, again, that's something that comes with, with experience. That judgment, the ability to look at a situation and see both sides of it and see how compromise is, rather, maybe it should be, <laughs> <laughs> compromise is an adult ability. Yeah. And I think that, it is difficult for someone who feels like they have such strong convictions mm. to be able to to say, oh, but but not today. Energetic youth is blessed and cursed with conviction. Yeah. I think it's important for folks to understand that he wasn't just some flighty romantic. He wasn't a person with his head up in the clouds. He made a very serious study of anything that he did. And 
his academic record while he was in college is very impressive. It says in the book, he had distinguished himself as a history and anthropology major with a 3.72 GPA. He was offered membership in Phi Beta Kappa, but declined, insisting that titles and honors are irrelevant. The final two years of his college education had been paid for with a $40,000 bequest left by a friend of the family. More than $24,000 remained at the time of Chris's graduation, money his parents thought he intended to use for law school. What nobody knew was that he would shortly donate all the money in his college fund to Oxfam America, a charity dedicated to fighting hunger. $24,000 is a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. But again, having that conviction allows you to disregard things like that. And I think that that he very much made a point of not caring about the fact that it was a lot of money. What use did he have for money with the adventure that he knew he was about to embark upon? There's a moment in the book where he somewhat symbolically burns all of the cash in his wallet. He makes a small fire in the desert and burns it all. I think for me, $24,000 giving that away, you're like, wow. I think it, to a certain degree, that was the thing that let him enjoy his freedom allowed him to walk away. Yeah. In the same way that burning the cash in his wallet, pulling it out in the desert and having that symbolic moment where he just burned everything he had, the monetary value in his life, and then he walked away from that portion of his life. At another point later on in the story, he writes a letter to his friend Westerberg that had hired him and he says, uh, I almost regret the money that you've given me for working because it makes tramping far too easy. Yeah. It's it's that kind of it's that kind of mindset. It's that what he's out there to do is to live free from the artificial constructs of society, and you can feel about that one way or another. But that's what he was trying to do, and at least in the respect of money, he he did that. So he's about to leave college. He's he's getting ready to graduate, and this is what Krakauer writes during that final year in Atlanta. Chris had lived off campus in a monkish room, furnished with little more than a thin mattress on the floor, milk crates, and a table. He kept it as orderly and spotless as a military barracks, and he didn't have a phone, so Walt and Billy, his parents, had no way of calling him. During graduation weekend, he casually mentioned to his parents that he intended to spend the upcoming summer on the road. His exact words were, I think I'm going to disappear for a while. How many times have I said those exact words myself? How many times have you disappeared? Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> Certainly not as permanently as Chris McCandless did. And you've always come back. I've always come back. Not necessarily willingly. No. <laughs> with, with a great amount of reluctance. Kicking, screaming, dragging. There was much hair pulling and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> yes. After graduation, his parents receive a large bundle of mail of his mail on their doorstep. And, and he had requested that the post office hold it until a certain date before redirecting it all there. I, there are times when I think he's just kind of a vindictive little shit. <laughs> I, he is incredibly two-faced around his parents. And I realize that he, again, getting back to that absolutism, he feels like there are some, some moral slights that they have taken against him. And he doesn't. there are some things that he, he feels like they have done that cross the boundary from which you can come back from. But the way that he separates from his from his parents, he, he tells his, his sister he's leaving. He has an incredible connection with his sister, Corinne. 
he almost, it's like he wants it to hurt. He wants it to pain them. And he, he takes a, a strange enjoyment in it. The topic of Chris McCandless and his relationship with his parents and with his father specifically is there is a good chunk of the book that, that deals with that. Honestly, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But I think we can safely say that without Mr. and Mrs. McCandless, there would be no Chris McCandless. And I, I think you can say that in two ways. This is a kid who went to Emory, left with no debt, left with arguably 20 grand in the bank, had incredible opportunities, was able to travel and tramp. Without Mr. and Mrs. McCandless, there would be no Chris McCandless. Mm-hmm. But also, based on their relationship, it's what pushed him away. Without Mr. and Mrs. McCandless, there would be no Alexander Supertramp. Exactly. Which, which is kind of his, is there a, there's a nom de plume. Is there a nom de... <laughs> nom de bush. Nom de asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> who he was, who he became, was as much reactionary as it was anything else. And so, in many ways, who he came to manifest could not have been without the example of what not to be. I think he, he saw many ways himself reflected on his parents and the, his kind of father's history, his family history. I think he was trying to get away from that as much as he could, as far away as, as he could. If his parents were one end of the spectrum, he flew, he tramped to the far other. Because again, if you see the world in black and white and what they represent is wrong, then the opposite of them must be right. Must be right. So his parents received this bundle of mail on their doorstep. And Krakauer writes, and I think this is just such a great description of, of what he's about to set out to do. He says, five weeks earlier, he'd loaded all his belongings into his little car and headed west without an itinerary. The trip was to be an odyssey in the fullest sense of the word, an epic journey that would change everything. He had spent the previous four years, as he saw it, preparing to fulfill an absurd and onerous duty to graduate from college. At long last, he was unencumbered, emancipated from the stifling world of his parents and peers, a world of abstraction and security and material excess, a world in which he felt grievously cut off from the raw throb of existence. Driving west out of Atlanta, he intended to invent an utterly new life for himself, one in which he would be free to wallow in unfiltered experience. To symbolize the complete severance from his previous life, he even adopted a new name. No longer would he answer to Chris McCandless. He was now Alexander Supertramp, master of his own destiny. I think that talks a lot about what we just discussed. And and moreover, that not having room for gray, there's a great deal of inconsistency in Chris McCandless's moral evaluations of the world and of people. I started this podcast by reading from Jack London because Jack London was one of Chris McCandless's favorite authors. And I think that 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 little segment set the context for Alaska looming up dark and ominous in the background of this entire story, since we know how it ends. But one of the things that Krakauer writes about this relationship that McCandless has with some of these figures in his life, he says, McCandless had been infatuated with London since childhood. London's fervent condemnation of capitalist society 
his glorification of the primordial world, his championing of the great unwashed. All of it mirrored McCandless's passions. Mesmerized by London's turgid portrayal of life in Alaska and the Yukon, McCandless read and reread The Call of the Wild, White Fang, To Build a Fire, The Wit of Porpertuck. He was so enthralled by these tales, however, that he seemed to forget they were works of fiction. Constructions of the imagination that had more to do with London's romantic sensibilities than with the actualities of life in the subarctic wilderness. McCandless conveniently overlooked the fact that London himself had spent just a single winter in the North, and he died by his own hand on his California estate at the age of 40, a fatuous drunk, obese and pathetic, maintaining a sedentary existence that bore scant resemblance to the ideals he espoused in print. Over and over again, Krakauer makes the point that McCandless took away the romantic idealism of the people that he followed in life and often forgave these incredible inconsistencies. <laughs> he was in love with the idea of him. Mm -hmm. Not so much the fact, the reality. I think that's easy to do. You read Jack London's work and it's... Oh. I, mean, I, I have an emotional connection to it. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And you know, the, we talked about it to build a fire later in life. Before he decided to off himself, <laughs> he he hung out in the warmer climes. Yeah, yeah. He spent a single winter in the Yukon yeah. Territory. M most of that in a clinic, right? <laughs> yeah, most of that in a clinic. <laughs> uh, I, I've been to his estate in Sonoma. It's kind of this beautiful, sprawling, central Californian, beautiful wine country. It, it is, it's cultivated. Parts of it still feel like kind of the edge of wilderness. It, there's some hiking trails and such, but... There's really a lot of grapes. <laughs> Talk about people that we admire in, in terms of the outdoors. Thoreau, for example. He hated Maine. <laughs> he was He's, terrified of the wilderness well, of Maine. And McCandless loves Thoreau. Something I appreciate about Krakauer is that when he quotes something that McCandless had put into, like had, had underlined or had taken note of, he adds the... The underlines, yeah. the kind of, uh, or the bold print, like where he had said, oh, this, this. And the Thoreau passages are just underscored here and there. Loves that ascetic, that monkish tone. And Thoreau, he actually really disliked being in the wilderness. Oh, yeah. He disliked the discomfort, the cold, the weather, the... The bears, the <laughs> animals. The, I think he wrote about it in, uh, what was his, Katahdin. Uh, which was is spelled experience. with a K T A D I I N. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but again, at some point in life, we realize that that our gods have feet made of clay. The reality is that these men are just human. And you, and you might try to say that that Chris McCandless had an appreciation for that. That he he liked the the works and not the man, but the the naive youthful exuberance is is all too apparent in that that section he has a little graffiti in in the bus the the part from Jack London that I wrote and in, in big exclamation bold marks he put London is king and and he was a man that died fat and pathetic by his own hand at the age of 40 on his California estate not in the wilderness not by tooth claw and nail McCandless left a uh, written record of what he did. Uh, fairly extensive, actually. And he has this kind of 
manifesto almost this this little statement that he writes that that was in the bus that that they found later after his body was discovered and i think that it does a great job of summarizing his mindset of explaining his story from his perspective and it's got this kind of beatnik rhythm to it in the way that it's written and and so this is i think chris mccandless's take on himself on his own story and he writes Two years he walks the earth. No phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes. Ultimate freedom. An extremist. An aesthetic voyager whose home is the road. Escape from Atlanta. Thou shalt not return, cause the West is the best. And now, after two rambling years, comes the final and greatest adventure. The climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution. Ten days and nights of freight trains and hitchhiking bring him to the great white north. No longer to be poisoned by civilization he flees and walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. So a couple of things here. Sure, go ahead. (laughs) Homeboy's in love with himself. (laughs) (laughs) I trust no man that writes about himself in the third person. The third person drives It's a little weird. It's... It's too. I. He's trying to pull the self out of him. Come on, yeah, kid. Like <laughs> it, that, and that's what you know. It's like <laughs> I remember being that age. <laughs> but the the romantic bravado to conclude the spiritual revolution, I mean, to kill the false being, buddy, simmer. But you know that being said, I envy that energy. I envy that passion for life that when you live in a world that you believe is free then having that sort of exaltation about what you're doing about how important this is in many ways it it makes me feel that cynicism is cheap and easy in many ways i think sometimes we make fun of this sort of thing because it makes us uncomfortable i mean there there's a portion of this that is just pure jealousy i mean i I remember writing with a pencil in a waterproof notebook in letters that were all capitals, sometimes a letter to two lines, because I didn't feel like what I was trying to capture could be contained within the bounds of a page. I wanted to make my emotions larger than they were. And it was when I was outside adventuring. And I I felt like I tapped into something that was greater than myself. I still shied away from using the third person. (laughs) (laughs) I have a hard time reading things that I wrote when I was that age. For, I think, this very reason. Because I look back and I'm like, oh, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or, to a certain degree, it's like, through that lens of time, is the person that I was in youth, would they be disappointed in who I've become as an adult? And there are times when I'm like, oh, the chains of domesticity. (laughs) The yoke chafes the neck. <laughs> uh, but also there are, I think that there are certain things, but like, eh, not bad there, bub. Yeah, and, yeah. And it it's that, that perspective of time going back when I was 17 or 18. Have I been able to maintain those convictions? Those things that I I felt like were were written in stone in my soul. Have I been able to maintain those priorities in my life? The thing about time is that when you're young, the iron of a man is rigid, but time tempers it 
And though it's less hard, it cuts more finely. I think the point to take it, that's okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the point is that for him, it's not. But we realize, I think, and for myself as a younger man, it was not. There was only the drive. There was only the ambition. And now, with a little more settled perspective, I realize it's okay if every day isn't the most majestic in the world. I think that unless you want to find great disappointment in your life, Mm. you have to understand that not every day will be the most majestic or you will be, you will find yourself quite sorry, quite disappointed. I suppose in some ways I envy the fact that that's a lesson that Chris McCandless never learned. And I think that sets us up to talk about really the, one of the most important pieces of the story, really the fact that there's a story here at all. Because if Chris McCandless had walked into the wilderness, stayed in that bus, and then gotten out, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. No, there, there'd be no book. There'd be no book. There'd be no story. that We would be completely unaware of this. But it's because he died that this story became important. Because we were left behind to unpack it and to figure out what happened. So we're going to address the question, why did Chris McCandless die? But before we do, there are two things that I think just set the stage nicely because Krakauer opens the book with him essentially walking the wild. He gets a ride from a Alaskan local named uh, Galleon who brings him up the highway there and drops him off where he wants to be dropped to the trailhead of the Stampede Trail. The date that he walked into the wilds of Alaska was April 28th, 1992. And during the drive, Galleon asks him about what he's planning to do and asks whether he had a hunting license. In the book, he writes, Hell no, Alex scoffed. How I feed myself is none of the government's business. Fuck their stupid rules. <laughs> I'll be damned if that didn't make my heart swell. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm reminded of Paul Petzold's Rules are for fools. (laughs) (laughs) But there is that strain of anti-authority that runs throughout this entire thing. Not not just the rules of authority, but the rules of society in general. There is this constant tension that he feels between himself and the constructs of society, which he views as mostly artificial. And I don't think that that's exclusive to him. If you look at a movie like The Matrix, for example... The underlying theme is that there is something inherently artificial about the world that we live in. If you look at money, you can't eat money. You can't really use money. Not in a tangible, real way. It represents something. It's an abstraction. And now we're moving in a direction of things like uh, Bitcoin, for example. Cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. Which is just little bits of fucking air. Zeros and ones. Which which is amazing when you think about what people will do for the sake of transferring numbers from one digital place to another digital place. Nothing real has happened. And no gold has there, changed hands. Well, and there's there's no reserve. I mean, for the longest time, the basis of currency was reserves of gold. And that doesn't really exist anymore. But you want to take that to an extreme? I mean, there is certainly no Fort Knox sitting behind Bitcoin. And And, and I'm not going to pretend to understand cryptocurrency. No. But the idea of mining (laughs) 
cryptocurrency <laughs> mining Bitcoin. What the fuck are you mining? <laughs> what? And and I'm sure that you could explain it. You could explain to me what it is that's happening there. And logically, that would all make sense. But there's this great term that I think we don't use enough, which is uh, sophistry, a sophism. Sophism is a va- it's a logically valid argument that is based on a fundamentally flawed assumption. And I think that that's how Chris McCandless felt about, I think he felt society was a sophism. And he was trying to get back to that fundamental truth. He was trying to get rid of the flawed fundamental assumption. And again, that's pure conjecture on my part, but I could I could see that as being a, a framework for understanding his view of the world. One might argue that going to Alaska, going off-grid, into the wild allowed him to do that, but it also removed some oversight. It's real easy to be like, I don't need a hunting license when there's one game warden per 10,000 square miles. <laughs> I don't need to have a, a hunting license. I don't need to let the government tell me what to do. Real easy to say when there's no government around. <laughs> yeah. But also, he specifically went someplace where there. He there, was actively seeking that environment, yeah, and, he, and he was he looking found for it. a place that that there was no government, no judgment. Reductively, there are two narratives that explain McCandless's death. One, some bad accidents that he couldn't help led to his death. Two, he was a shithead and got himself killed. The story of his death is actually significantly more complicated and, and nuanced than either of these explanations, and because it so deeply colors the lessons that we take away from it all, I think it's important to unpack it thoroughly. And the truth is, the story of his death, it starts well before he ever got to Alaska. He winds up for a brief time in Mexico when he's doing this two-year vagabonding trip. And a couple experiences that he has there, I think, are important to mention. Krakauer writes, He greeted the new year of 1991, by observing the full moon as it rose over the Gran Desierto, the Great Desert, 1,700 square miles of shifting dunes, the largest expanse of pure sand desert in North America. I had never heard of this before. And so I went online and looked up a picture. It's incredible. It's what I, it, it looks like what I think of when I see pictures of the Sahara, or when I think of the Sahara. This is what I think of. So I put up a picture of this on the, the show notes if you want to go and check that out. But... Think about this. He's 20-something years old, and he brings in the new year by watching the moon come up over the greatest expanse of sand dunes in North America. In a foreign country that he has snuck into in a canoe. Yeah, that he just decided to get to. This is, I think, the the longest that he'd been alone to this point in his life. It's like three weeks or something. Yeah. He, He goes something like the better part of a month where he doesn't see anybody. And this is happening, and he's he's kind of in uh, this this Gulf area where the the sea is is right nearby. So he's paddling his canoe, and eleven days after that New Year's Day comes in, Krakauer writes, after traveling some distance south, he beached the canoe on a sandbar far from shore to observe the powerful tides. An hour later, violent gusts started blowing down from the desert, and the wind and tidal rips conspired to carry him out to sea. The water by this time was a chaos of whitecaps that threatened to swamp and capsize his tiny craft. The wind increased to gale force. The whitecaps grew into high, breaking waves. In great frustration, the journal reads, 
He screams and beats Canoe with oar. The oar breaks. Alex has one spare oar. He calms himself. If loses second oar, is dead. Finally, through extreme effort and much cursing, he manages to beach Canoe on jetty and collapses on sand at sundown. I remember I was visiting with a relative down in Florida, little place near Tampa Bay, and uh, she had this nine-foot monocast hull sailing boat, just a plastic hull with a single mast that you could launch right off the uh, the seawall. And so one day I was out there in conditions that that boat was not meant to be sailed in. I, I was pushing that thing real hard. Duck and, pond, not Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and I, I love to sail. I really enjoy it. But I also really enjoy pushing the boats to their limits. And I push this boat to its limit. And in the middle of this bay, the mast snapped from the bottom of the boat. It was held in place by a single bolt that came up through the bottom. And the mast tipped forward into the water, wrapping itself up in the main sheet. I tried to lean forward to bring it back up to see if I could fix the mast. And, and there was just no way that it was happening. That, Like I said, given the construction of the mast... There was nothing I could do. So I'm out there in the middle of this bay, which is, uh, I think it was three miles long by a mile across, maybe. Uh, I'm not in the middle of a lane where a boat is going to come by. So I'm just adrift and I've got this broken boat. What I do is, well, first of all, I remember the the key rule, never leave the boat. Because I'm like, eh, half a mile. I can swim that. No big deal. (laughs) But I remember one of those basic principles never leave the boat. So I don't. Like I said, the main sheet is all wrapped up in the the mainsail. So I kind of wrap it around myself, wrap it around the rudder behind me. And what I can do is I can lean backwards just enough so that with my full weight, I can lever the mast up and out of the water at the front of the boat just enough so that it catches a little bit of wind and can push me towards the shore. For hours, I'm wrapped up in this rope, putting my full body weight on this, trying to steer the rudder with one arm behind me, and having this fucked up sail push me towards shore, inch by inch. And I finally get to shore. I managed to point it towards a a yacht club or something. (laughs) So I wind up on the shore of this yacht club, and I've been out there for a couple hours. I've got a shirt on, a pair of short shorts and some flip-flops and I roll into their clubhouse like what up (laughs) hey bro (laughs) and and apparently some people had seen me coming in they're like what the fuck is this (laughs) but the but I was exuberant yeah instead of saying wow I really took that boat to its limits and beyond what you thought was I can do anything (laughs) I it would but it, it was so real yeah. The especially when I was out there in the middle of the bay and that happened and you're like you have that oh fuck moment. I, nothing feels as good as that. Taking yourself to the edge of calamity, a titch beyond and then back adds a certain sobriety, clarity. We've talked about this before that the edge of survival, of safety. And that's that's where we find the sweetest taste of life. Yeah, and in many ways, I 
I got exactly what I was looking for by taking that boat out in conditions it shouldn't have been out in. I knew that that boat couldn't handle it, but I did it anyways. And I think because part of me was looking for that. It wasn't because I wanted disaster. It wasn't because I wanted to die or had a death wish or anything like that. I wanted the adventure. And And hey, I still do. Well, and the lesson you taught yourself was, doesn't matter if the boat breaks, I can survive. Exactly. In the same way that the lessons that Alex teaches or McCandless teaches himself throughout the story. I mean, truly, I think it's easy for me when I'm talking about Chris McCandless in his time before to call him Chris McCandless. It's so easy to slip into his nomenclature that during this time, he becomes Alex. Oh, yeah. So... So forgive us if we make it, that mistake. It, 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 I think it's easy in in this portion to just, he's Alex. He but is. Alex, through all of his experiences, what he teaches himself is not that he should be more careful and more prepared. It's that no matter what happens, what comes up, he can deal with it. And that is exactly the point that Krakauer makes next when he says, on January 16th, 1991, McCandless left the stubby metal boat and started walking north up the deserted beach. He had not seen or talked to another soul in 36 days. 36 days. That's wild. For that entire period, he subsisted on nothing but five pounds of rice and what marine life he could pull from the sea. An experience that would later convince him that he could survive on similarly meager rations in the Alaska bush. This is one of the chief mistakes that I wanted to point out because it's exactly what you're talking about with the lessons that you take away. He neglected that that lesson was context dependent. He's in the same country and area as Acapulco. It's warm. It's resort country. <laughs> and Alaska is a completely different beast. And and that is something that will come up later, which I don't think I mentioned explicitly. So I'll just get into it right now. At one point, when he's in Alaska, he kills this moose. And in his conversations with hunters, they had told him that the best way to cure meat, once you, if you're in the bush, the best way to cure meat is to smoke it. So he tries to smoke it and fails miserably. In, in large kind of ham-sized sections. Right. He'll take like a quarter and leave it in the smoke. And what he really does is feed the bugs. Within and, days, it's filled with maggots. And in Alaska... The technique that they use for preserving wild meat is they cut it. They basically make it into jerky by cutting yeah. it into thin strips and letting it air dry. Yeah, you hang it out so that it dries. But the information that he got was from hunters in Minnesota, not Alaska. And again, yeah. it's those context-dependent lessons. And in fact, if you look back over the history of the human species, we adapt to our environment. In fact, we have to adapt to our environment. He would have done much better to do something like Richard Nelson did where he went to go live with the Inuit hunters yeah. and learn their ways and how they survive up in Alaska. In the same way we've talked about in the Craig Childs book, every kind of native society has a different way of doing things. And it could be shelter. It could be procuring food. It could be how to store food. And understanding the the region that you're working in, understanding those kind of subtleties in environment, in weather, in habitat, those were lost on McCandless. Because every time he had blundered his way into a situation, he'd come out okay. He'd lost some weight. He would finish most of, most of these kind of epics, thin, gaunt, lean. He thrived at that 
edge of nutrition. And he thought that he could get by. And when he was placed in this different environment that was so different than anything he'd experienced, most of his tramping was through the desert southwest. He's in Utah. He's in New Mexico. He's in Southern California. He spent some time in the Dakotas, but always as a worker. He never has to live, survive, thrive where it's cold, any place where it's cold. This is one of the chief points where I criticize his hubris because he didn't know enough to know that he didn't know what he needed to know. And that, right, just understanding the extent of your own ignorance, I think that's one of the most important pieces towards actually learning. And there is a level of arrogance that, again, at that age, I very much identify with. But there is a level of arrogance throughout this entire story that if you compare it to something like people that actually live in the wilderness, native populations, aboriginal populations, they have collectively a much, much more humble relationship with nature than I think Chris McCandless does at any point. Well, and it it's that man versus nature that he kind of subsists on, which almost surprises me. Yeah. As romantic as his vision is throughout this book, his relationship with nature is has always been one of struggle. Again, reading this again for the fourth or fifth time, I I think it surprised me more than it had in the past. That I was surprised that he didn't have as much of a kind of naturalistic or almost like shamanistic connection. Mm -hmm. He understands the beauty of it, but a lot of it is the, the king, the power, the survival, and... He uses nature, the brutality of nature, to find himself. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into that uh, a little bit later on. But absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk for a second about his gear and his equipage for going out into the wilderness. Somebody was quoted as saying that Chris was very much of the school that you should own nothing except what you can carry on your back at a dead run. I'm not saying I disagree. It's just that sometimes it's harder to run than others. Depending on how heavy your pack is, depending on what you have in there. I, I've run some great distance with 80 pounds on my back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, after working a, a season in Wyoming, I was actually doing an evac for uh, one of our students. And I had to split coil them out of the woods where you make uh, this kind of like diaper sling out of a climbing a little rope. swami harness. Yeah, and he, the... The patient or the person you're trying to move, this guy had an ankle injury, kind of sits in these two butterfly loops, and then you put it on your shoulders like a backpack. So I carried him out to an evac point where a truck had picked him up, and then I had to go back to meet the rest of my course. So I kind of, I'm in hiking boots and a pair of shorts and kind of the stuff in my pockets. I was traveling pretty light. So I kind of jog run back the three miles where I'd left my pack, maybe four miles to where I'd leave my pack. And then I had to meet up with my with the rest of my group. So I put on my pack, which is a guide's pack at this point. It's 80 plus pounds. And I set off at a jog. And I, I remember passing these three guys that were obviously lightweight backpackers. They're all wearing sneakers and go light packs. And they might be carrying 15, 20 pounds. And I passed them at a steady jog. This is the best cardiovascular fitness of my life. I could not do this at this point. I am all but running with an 80-pound load on, and these three guys are trying to keep up with me. 
and they couldn't. <laughs> and I could, I, I could almost feel their frustration as this like, you know, woolly bear of a man goes running past with. Yeah, man. I, a, I think of every ruck run I've ever done, ever. Well, that that's just the military. That's just it's like, oh, you're gonna run. Well, actually, put this human size pack on your back. Let's just. Oh, and then uh, let's do some buddy carries too. Throw that guy on your shoulders. So now you're carrying 280 pounds. There you go. Now run, you fuck. So. Sure. I mean, 25, 30 pounds? Meh. And Krakauer gives us a description of of what he kind of intermingles it with uh, this guy, Galleon, that had given him a ride. He intermingles a description of what he was carrying with him as he walked into the bush. And this, again, talking about some of the mistakes that he made, this is one of the ones, I think, that, that's worth mentioning. He writes, Alex's backpack looked as though it weighed only 25 or 30 pounds, which struck Galleon, an accomplished hunter and woodsman, as an improbably light load for a stay of several months in the backcountry, especially so early in the spring. He wasn't carrying anywhere near as much food and gear as you'd expect a guy to be carrying for that kind of trip, Galleon said. When he was talking to Galleon, Alex admitted that the only food in his pack was a 10-pound bag of rice. Alex's cheap leather hiking boots were neither waterproof nor well insulated. His rifle was only twenty-two caliber, a bore too small to rely on to be expected to kill large animals like moose and caribou. He had no axe, no bug dope, no snowshoes, no compass. The only navigational aid in his possession was a tattered state road map he'd scrounged at a gas station. Krakauer also notes that he did have a twenty-two caliber Remington with a 4x20 scope called the Nylon 66. It was a favorite of Alaskan trappers because of its lightweight and reliability. So I read this section and I start to boil inside. Oh, it- I cringe. It almost makes me angry. So we've talked a few times about sometimes experience is more of a capability than product. Knowing how to do things. And, and oftentimes we, we see this in first aid kits, in, in aid bags, that the more you know, sometimes the more you leave at home because you just don't need it. And I think if he was an accomplished woodsman and hunter, that maybe he could go with a, a little less because he would know how to how to make how to how to do without but he doesn't he doesn't have that knowledge and he doesn't bring the stuff that leaves him at a disadvantage <laughs> a significant one <laughs> the part that gets me is the his boots were neither waterproof nor well insulated he admits they're from Kmart i i can't even like so granted i was a boot fitter for a few years i fit a lot of boots I know boots pretty well. The idea of wearing Kmart boots into the Alaskan wilderness—it, it makes me cringe. It's yeah. It makes me. I, it's insulting. It, it truly as, is. As somebody that, as somebody that, well, one respects wilderness, but two also respects gear, or respects having ten toes. Yeah, like he's going into Alaska in the spring, which is really like. Winter in a lot of other places. <laughs> Probably winter anywhere he had ever been. Granted, I've I've never been to Alaska. I've been into the mountains of the American West, Montana, Wyoming, in the spring and summer, and have often carried a zero-degree sleeping bag, a downwinter jacket, plastic mountaineering boots. I've carried all the things that you would carry on a winter backpacking trip because I traveled on snow sometimes for days and days on end. Not just on glaciated terrain, just 
there's still snow in the high country in the spring, in June. And this is May, and he's walking into the Alaska bush in Kmart. I don't even want to call them boots. Kmart <laughs> shoes. Foot things. <laughs> so this guy, Galleon, that gives him a ride, he, he gives him his... His rubber boots. Yeah, which don't fit well. They're they're extra toughs, which are like the Alaskan sneaker. And they're two sizes too big. But they're they're probably what kept his feet dry enough that he and, didn't lose toes. And he basically has to bully yeah, Chris McCowns like into taking them. them on him. Yeah. So he and he buys this rifle out of the classified ads in the, the local town. And you know, he spends like 150 bucks on the thing. And it's a 22. So 22 long. It's a rim fire, small caliber, tiny, tiny bullet. Great for things like small game squirrels, woodchucks, porcupines, possum or two. But it's not something that you would use. It, there are many states that, that legislate against its use for larger animals. You can't hunt deer with 22 rim fire in a lot of places. Because it's not enough gun to ethically take animals like that. Exactly. And that that is one of the things that really does bother me about this. As somebody who does like to hunt, as somebody that does appreciate firearms, it's irresponsible to the animal to try to kill it with a twenty two caliber. It's just not right. Yeah, exactly. So like, you got a lot of little animals in the last sure. year. Ground squirrels and porcupines and such. But when you take that step up to larger ungulate they get real big real quick caribou ain't small moose not small and the bears they grow there quite large yeah they they dab a little miracle grow on them i think (laughs) i personally i'd I'd want something more than a 22 so would i so and and i i even wonder if it'd be worth taking two rifles out there one like a like a mini trapper 22 maybe even like a 22 pistol yeah revolver just something super small and then an actual higher caliber rifle for hunting real game. Something in thirty cal, sure. The other thing about this is that he's only bringing a ten pound bag of rice. You were just mentioning how you were how you would run with an eighty pound pack on. How I would run with an eighty pound pack on. <laughs> you know what, man? It's hard to do that on a cup of rice a day. It's real hard to do that over a sustained amount of time, unless you've got the calories to burn. Unless you've got that metabolic intake going for you, it's really hard to sustain that kind of effort. You can't just will your way through a caloric deficit. So there's a difference between surviving and thriving here. And I go back to my time working in Wyoming. We were eating between, you know, 2000, you know, maybe 15 to 2,500 calories a day on a big movement day. So carrying big packs, moving over tough mountain terrain. We estimated we were burning between six and eight thousand. Yeah. So that that makes you strong and lean. I'd I would easily lose like 10, 15, 20 pounds in a course. A lot of that I could have lost. <laughs> uh, but the the ability to maintain function, to to thrive in a situation like that, you don't get that from eating lean meat like squirrels and rabbits. There's such thing as Rabbit starvation. Yeah. Because they, they don't, if you're only eating rabbits, you can still starve because they have lots of protein, but no fat. You lose some of the basic nutrients that you need to survive. And I'm, I know I'm going to break some hearts out here, 
but uh, carbohydrates, you fucking need them. Well, so eat them. So rice, that's a start. Actually, you know what? Just looked at my bag of rice. One <laughs> cup equals 160 calories. That's not enough. So what's and so what's he, a cup of rice? So weight? he has a 10 pound bag of rice. I mean, that's he, he's got two days worth of calories. Maybe, <laughs> maybe three. If he stretch, I mean, for me, fuck, that's three days. There's not enough blueberries and like roots to fill in the gaps. Again, if you're from a native population that understands the subtleties of feeding yourself on this terrain, that's one thing. But when you're kind of a bumbling fool and have a tattered paperback that you got out of the local library on how to how to eat wild food, it's just not enough. Now, I do want to stomp you there because this is this is where we get in the territory of okay, calling Chris McCandless a bumbling fool. The fact is that he walked into the wilderness as we have well established underprepared and he was out there for months. So, months. He proves the point. He continues to prove the point to himself. I can do this. Well, and you know what? At some point, we have to say, yeah, actually, he can. I mean, he under-equipped with not a lot of great local knowledge. He did a great job of surviving out there alone for 76 days intentionally, and then a little bit more time out there unintentionally, with only the barest of resources. But when he, well, if he had walked out, at his intended time, he would have re-entered civilization looking like a Holocaust survivor. Homeboy was thin. Not not just lean, but he had gotten to the point where his, his body was eating his own muscle. So again, capable, yes, he had survived, but he was not thriving in this environment. That being said, how many people could have survived as long as he had? And maybe that was his point. After John Krakauer wrote this book, after the article came out in Outside Magazine, there was a lot of feedback. There was a lot of critical reception. He makes mention of people that have written their critiques of Chris McCandless. And a lot of them are kind of reactionary, um, very dismissive. But there was one that he includes in the book that I personally think is probably the most mature criticism of Chris McCandless, and I wanted to include it here because I think it does a great job of representing that other mindset of the folks that are not overawed by Chris McCandless and what he did or did not do. He's quoting this letter that he received. It's from a guy that that lives in Alaska. He writes, Over the past 15 years, I've run into several McCandless types out in the country. Same story. Idealistic, energetic young guys who overestimated themselves underestimated the country, and ended up in trouble. McCandless was hardly unique. There's quite a few of these guys hanging around the state, so much alike that they're almost a collective cliché. The only difference is that McCandless ended up dead, with a story of his dumbassedness splashed across the media. Jack London got it right in To Build a Fire. McCandless is, finally, just a pale 20th century burlesque of London's protagonist who freezes because he ignores advice and commits big-time hubris. His ignorance, which could have been cured by a USGS quadrant and a Boy Scout manual, is what killed him. And while I feel for his parents, I have no sympathy for him. Such willful ignorance amounts to disrespect for the land 
McCandless's contrived asceticism and pseudo-literary stance compound rather than reduce the fault. McCandless's postcards, notes, and journals read like the work of an above-average, somewhat histrionic high school kid. Or am I missing something? I think that does an excellent job of representing the other view. And frankly, covers a lot of some of our own critiques of McCandless. The the hubris, the disrespect for the land. Some of his issues could have been fixed with a USGS quadrangle and a Boy Scout manual. The map thing. The the map thing, I have to talk about this. I I understand, and I think it's important to note that he was going out there intentionally, not to his estimation underprepared, but barely prepared. He didn't want a map. He wanted to experience wilderness. He wanted to experience it free from the constraints of man, uncharted territory. So, and I've talked with people in the backcountry about the idea of mapless areas. That if you wanted true wilderness in the U.S., the best way to do that might be to take all the maps away. Yeah, and he, or, and that's basically, and I think Krakauer does an excellent job making that point. He's like, yeah, McCandless wanted to go to Terra Incognita, so he just solved it in in kind of an elegant way. He just took the map away. Yeah, and I think that that adds to the idea of discovery as well. Totally. When you walk into a place where you don't have a map, exploring the the subtleties of that landscape it creates a connection to it you kind of self map it yeah and 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 i think that there's a piece of discovery that's lost when you already know what's on the other side of a hill there absolutely is but i look at the map as a tool because here's the deal you can have the map in your pack and, and never look it. at it yeah but it's there I think about Richard Nelson, actually, when he talks about carrying a rifle with him. And he says, I don't feel a greater disconnection. I just feel a sense of appreciation for the realities of living in this landscape. It's like anything. It's a tool that you you use it to the, the degree or it adds an insurance policy. In this case, I mean, they talk about how he could have easily, if he'd looked at a map, he only knew his one way in and out. And when that was blocked, he didn't have other options. Or if he'd looked at a map, he'd been like, oh, look at that. Here's another way. And and speaking of that, I have to go back to Krakauer here because he says, and this is kind of the heartbreaking piece of it. Ironically, the wilderness surrounding the bus, the patch of overgrown country where McCandless was determined to become lost in the wild, scarcely qualifies as wilderness by Alaska standards. Less than 30 miles to the east is a major thoroughfare, the George Parks Highway. Just 16 miles to the south, beyond an escarpment of the outer range, hundreds of tourists rumble daily into Denali Park over a road patrolled by the National Park Service. And unbeknownst to the aesthetic voyager, scattered within a six-mile radius of the bus are four cabins. Four cabins. Two of them, I think, owned, or one or two of them owned by the NPS, uh, and then another two or three owned, uh, privately owned. So there, there's kind of two pieces here. One, it is, I'd say, tradition, kind of ethic, that when you leave a cabin someplace like Alaska, you leave it somewhat stocked. You make sure that there is some basic food and survival supplies. You make sure that the, the wood bin is full. And part of that's a, when you return, you know that you have things in place, but also it's, there are enough travelers who become lost that it gives them a resource it's a kind of a lifeline 
that when you roll into a cabin, if there's no one there, you have a pretty good sense that there will probably be some supplies that could save your life. All of these cabins were stocked. In this case, strangely, someone had broken into them and destroyed the goods. A biologist had said he, he was pretty certain it was not a bear because he had he studied bears. It looked like someone had attacked them with a claw hammer. And incidentally, uh, some folks think that it might have been McCandless. He never doesn't describe it in his journals. It doesn't really fit who he is. But they'd all been kind of vandalized. Yeah, I think that if he had done that, it would have been mentioned in the journals. I also think that he had gotten to a point where he would have gone back to one of those places. In the hopes that he, Quite would, likely. Have, he would have found something that maybe he had yeah. left. Yeah, I think if he had known them, that they were there, he would have used them as a resource. But he didn't, because he didn't know that they were there. Because he didn't have a map. Because he didn't have a map. I just, I, yeah, yeah. In the way but in there's, and out. It's, you know what it is? It's the, <laughs> it's it's like, it's it's the sad, almost pathetic, like his wilderness was not so wild. No. That's, for me, that's like the... It's a bitter irony. It was a, it was a quiet country park in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, but the the fact is, you know what? You can drown in two inches of water. Yeah, it doesn't have to be lost at sea. And, and there had been no one there in three months. What is wilderness? But I mean, there are there are times in medicine where we call it one mile or one hour from definitive care. Like what puts in that wilderness protocol? One mile, one hour. Yeah, he was certainly more than a mile or an hour. Absolutely. I think people sometimes forget with his story that he had actually reached what he felt was a good place in his trip, a good time to rejoin civilization. He was done. He was happy with what he'd done. He'd gone out there for 76 days. He was pleased with what he'd accomplished. He wanted, His Alaskan adventure was over. But when he started heading back east and got to the river that he'd crossed easily just a couple months before, it was now glut with melted ice and rain. And what had basically, what had practically been a stream was now a roaring river. So he decided to turn back. And Krakauer does a great job of describing this. If he had walked a mile or so upstream, he would have discovered that the river broadened into a maze of braided channels. If he'd scouted carefully, by trial and error, he might have found a place where the braids were only chest deep. As strong as the current was running, it would have certainly knocked him off his feet, but by dog paddling and hopping along the bottom as he drifted downstream, he could conceivably have made it across before being carried into the gorge or succumbing to hypothermia. But it would still have been a very risky proposition, and at that point, McCandless had no reason to take such a risk. He'd been fending for himself quite nicely in the country. He probably understood that if he was patient and waited, the river would eventually drop to a level where it could be safely forded. After weighing his options, therefore, he settled on the most prudent course. He turned around and began walking to the west, back toward the bus, back into the fickle heart of the bush. You know, what seems to be the most prudent action in a circumstance, it's not truly knowable. He was walking to his death. After having made the safest choice he could have made in that situation, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you if you don't know that there's a place where you can cross by zipline, or you don't know that there's a place where you might be able to ford the river, if what you know is 
and to a certain degree makes the right decision here because where he where the stampede trail crosses the water is deep it's running hard it's full of spring melt it's cold if he had tried to cross there he would have died in that moment he was aware enough to realize that he turned around he went back to what was safety and if he had really wanted to get to the other side of the river i imagine he would have scouted i think he would have tried but he, was like, but he wasn't what? desperate. That's yeah, the thing. I, he wasn't desperate at this point. He's like, yeah, I've been out here for, oh, shit, 76 days. What's what's a few more? What's a couple more weeks? I'll give it another month and exactly. let things No settle. big deal. But that's not how things shook out. So why did he die? This is the question that, that we come to. Because his official cause of death was starvation. On the coroner's report, that's what it, it He was 67 pounds when they found him. But... Why? That's the question. He had been living out there for 76 days. Why now did he die? And there were a couple different theories that were going around. In the very first edition, Krakauer posited a couple. And I want to take you through the story, which starts on July 30th with this entry in McCandless's journal. It says, extremely weak, fault of POT period seed period. Much trouble just to stand up. Starving. Great Jeopardy. His decline was very sudden. Going from being functional to non-functional, it happened very rapidly. Uh, I think it was like a, a week period, maybe two weeks at the most, where he went from Alexander Supertramp to dying on the bed, unable to move. The surmisation was that he had somehow poisoned himself. Because given that, that journal entry, that POT period seed... It was thought that the seeds he had collected from the wild potato were the culprit. Because one of the bags that he, one of the pictures that he took of himself featured this bag that was just stuffed to the brim with wild potato seeds. He'd been harvesting the roots and eating those because in that guidebook that you had mentioned that he'd gotten, it said that the roots were edible. There was nothing wrong with this plant. So he started to harvest the seeds as well as the roots. He just had like this backup stash of food. And as, as the season progresses, those roots start to get kind of tough right. and, and harden up. So you get, there's less nutritional value. They're, they're less palatable. You just can't eat them. So he was, he was looking for an additional source of Other parts of the yeah. plant to eat. Yeah. And one of the proposed reasons for his death was that he had actually mistaken the wild potato plant for the toxic wild sweet pea plant. And their appearance is almost identical except for with the wild potato plant on the underside of the leaf. There are these visible lateral veins. Even botanists have a hard time yeah. telling them apart. And this was this is actually the reason that, like in the movie, this was kind of what they showcased as this was the reason why McCandless died. And, and in Krakauer's original outside article, this was what he kind of confidently concluded that this is the reason that McCandless died. And indeed, that explanation fits really well with the caricature of McCandless as this rash, incautious, naive kid. But, but, the explanation didn't satisfy Krakauer. Because he thought to himself, how is it that this guy, for many, many, many weeks, had been safely harvesting the root of the wild potato plant? But then, when he switches the seeds, suddenly he starts making the mistake of misidentifying the wild sweet pea plant? What, that do, that didn't seem to be quite right. So Krakauer felt that Chris McCandless had indeed accidentally poisoned himself. 
but the that he had done it with the seeds of the wild potato plant, that he had gotten the wild potato plant right, but that there was something about the seeds that was toxic. The problem was the plant was thought to be non-toxic. There were, there were no records of this plant causing any sort of toxic syndrome in human not, beings. Not in the kind of modern historical relevance. Well, the, the wild potato plant, it belongs to a family that happens to include other plants that do have these toxic alkaloid compounds. Plants closely related to the wild potato produce chemicals like nicotine, curare, and strychnine. So Krakauer gathered seeds from the wild potato plants around the bus, and he sent them to the chemistry department at the University of Alaska. And it was determined there that those seeds contained no toxic alkaloids whatsoever. So that was that. But he still couldn't let this go. He, he was obsessed with finding out why Chris McCandless died. And finally, he chanced upon this other idea, this other chemical called swainzanine. And he had thought that maybe it was swainzanine poisoning. So swainzanine is a very potent alkaloid. And it's known in veterinary literature to kill livestock. It's produced by a fungus, R. leguminicola, that grows on legumes, which the wild potato is, in soggy climates. The fact that McCandless stored the legume seeds in a Ziploc bag during a rainy season was the likely cause of his death. And, and it wasn't that he had made a mistake per se. He hadn't gotten the wrong plant. He had just ingested this mold that he couldn't have known was on the seeds. And the symptoms seemed to fit with what McCandless describes in his journals. The symptoms of swainzanine poisoning include depression, a staggering gait, emaciation, muscular incoordination, and nervousness. It's actually a really interesting mechanism what, what swainzanine does. It inhibits effective glycoprotein metabolism. It's kind of like putting a kink in the fuel line of your car. No matter how much gas you put in there, the engine is going to starve. And that's that's how swainzanine poisoning works is it cuts off your body's ability to turn food into energy. So it makes sense that he would have starved himself to death regardless of how much food he was eating. However, he had no hard evidence for this claim. And further exhaustive testing of the wild potato plant, as well as the wild sweet pea plant, did not show any chemical basis for alkaloid toxicity. So he had this idea that maybe it was the mold. And they also said that there was no alkaloid toxicity in the wild potato plant. So it was still kind of an up in the air question. Now... Randomly, in 2013, he comes across this essay that was published online in, I think, 2004. And this guy's name was Ronald Hamilton. And he posited that Chris McCandless had died not from an alkaloid in the plant, but rather an amino acid. Let me take you back to 1942. In 1942, an officer at a concentration camp in Vapniarka, started to feed the Jewish inmates soup made from the seeds of the grass pea, a common legume known to be toxic since the time of ancient Greece. The condition caused by this poisoning is known as lathirism, from the plant's name Lathyrus sativus. Following the war, the chemical causing this condition was isolated and identified, a neurotoxin that they deemed beta-ODAP, or ODAP for short. Its mechanism is affected by overstimulating nerve receptors, which causes them to die. This induces progressively worsening paralysis in the subject, and once a critical mass has been reached, its effects cannot be reversed. 
initial test performed in 2004 at the request of Hamilton showed evidence that ODAP was very likely present in both the wild potato seed and the wild sweet pea seed. But the tests were not specific enough to declare conclusively that they were there. So Krakauer finds this article, this online essay, in 2013, and he has 150 grams of freshly collected wild potato seeds evaluated by high-pressure liquid chromatography, which showed that the seeds contained 0.394% ODAP by weight, a concentration well within the dosage known to cause lithiorism in humans. So that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin. They figured that that was what killed Chris McCandless. It wasn't this alkaloid. It was, in fact, a neurotoxic amino acid in the seeds of this plant that before nobody knew about. But Krakauer received a pretty scathing review from a scientist who said that unless it's been exhaustively tested and published in a peer-reviewed article, concluding anything is premature and unwarranted. And, and to his credit, Krakauer conceded the point. So he had the seeds analyzed in an even higher level of detail which revealed significant amounts of a substance in the seeds with a molecular mass of 176, which is the molecular mass of ODAP. But then, just to be extra sure, they tested the seeds with liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry, which, if you're not impressed by that name, I don't know what's going to do it for you. (laughs) And that revealed that the molecular mass of the molecule was indeed 176, but the fragmentation ion pattern of the molecule was not consistent with ODAP. Hamilton's grand hypothesis was incorrect. There was, conclusively, no ODAP in the wild potato. So no lithiorism, no amino acid ODAP killing Chris McCandless. But if not ODAP, then what? There was obviously something there, and something with a similar structure and weight to ODAP. The answer was found in a dusty 1960 copy of the Canadian Journal of Botany, which reported that the seeds of the wild potato plant contain a toxic amino acid called L-canavanine, and the molecular mass of this molecule, 176. Final testing, with this new information, led to the discovery that the wild potato seeds that grow around the bus where Chris McCandless died contained 1.2% L-canavanine by weight. Canavanine poisoning, while rare, has been documented in some scientific publications, and that dosage is enough to be lethal to humans. Krakauer, along with a team of scientists, published their findings in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine in October of 2014. Links to the paper are in the show notes. 2014. 25 years later. That's when we find out how Chris McCandless died. And what's important about that is that because he died, we now know that the seeds of the wild potato plant contain a neurotoxic amino acid, L-canavanine. If we had known that back then, if there had been just a little disclaimer in that book that Chris McCandless had, it's quite possible he wouldn't have died. But there was nothing in that book. There was nothing to say, hey, you can't eat the seeds, because Chris McCandless hadn't died yet, and one man had not yet taken up this obsessive fascination with finding out why he died to figure out that it wasn't because he made a mistake. It wasn't because he got the wrong plant. It wasn't a magical mold. 
No. It was just the fact that we, as human beings, hadn't put together the science to figure out the truth. It seems that this has like a bioaccumulative effect. It's not like he would have eaten it, had some sort of a medic response, thrown it up because he got sick. He ate it. Nothing bad happened. He ate a little bit more. And then days go by. Maybe he has some subtle changes in behavior, how he's feeling, his stability, his weakness. Because it, it comes on gradually. It's He couldn't say, oh, it must be the potato seeds. Though he, he does, to a certain degree, well, he figures it, it out. I think, yeah, he figures it out. And fuck, that must have been a light bulb moment for him. But he had no way of knowing what it was. And at that point, it's it's too late. It's too late. He's, he's made himself too weak to continue. You know, it's it's not just he was starving and wasn't able to muscle his way out of the bush. He was being paralyzed by this neurotoxin, this neurotoxic amino acid that was killing him from the inside out. And I think that having that understanding changes our appreciation of what happened out there. Because if he had just, you know, made the mistake of misidentifying the plant, if he had just completely been rash, then yeah, then that that paints a very different portrait of Chris McCandless than the guy who, through really no fault of his own, gets poisoned. I mean, yes, he makes a lot of mistakes that get him into a place where he can't be rescued from that situation. But the one that kills him is not one that he he'd actually done to a certain degree done his research here. Yeah, he, he had the guidebook that showed the plants for this area. He was following it, and it was just it was unknown to science. And I think that this. This goes back to a point that you and I often make about people who spend time in the woods where we just know that you can do everything right and still die. And Chris McCandless did not do everything right. He did a lot of things wrong. But shit goes sideways. He still lived. He still lived. He still lived. (laughs) Shit goes sideways when you don't expect it to. And from a a direction in a way that you, you couldn't have foretold. So why do we care? That's that's really the question we're left with. That at the end of the day, you know, this is the Chris McCandless story, and, and and he died, and we figured out why he died. But why do we care? Why do we keep talking about this? Why is this so fascinating for us? I want to start off with a, a quote here. Alaska has long been a magnet for dreamers and misfits, people who think the unsullied enormity of the last frontier will patch all the holes in their lives. The bush is an unforgiving place, however, that cares nothing for hope or longing. He went in the wild specifically unprepared. So admonishments against him not being prepared for the experience, they're a little bit weaker, but there's unprepared and then there's foolish. And we talked about this idea of having a map as an insurance policy, but he didn't want the insurance. If you know that you can get out okay, it cheapens the experience, or it did for him. It injected a bit of gray into where he wanted only black and white. Well, I can't imagine ever going into the wilderness and not taking a map and a compass and studying the landscape beforehand and being well-prepared with the right equipment. There is also something about his approach, about just going for it. I think about Alex Honnold, for example, who is a well-known for his free solos of some of the major routes in climbing. He climbs out the aid of a rope or equipment of any kind. People look at him and think that he's he's nuts. He's crazy. And maybe he is to a certain extent. 
<laughs> like seeing some of the climbs that he has is just amazing. But he just stands at the bottom of El Capitan and sends it. Just goes right up. But it's not like it's his first day climbing. It's not like he's never done something like this before. He climbs routes that he knows he can climb. In many cases that he has climbed before with a rope, with protection. And then he goes and does it. Then he goes and free solos it. It doesn't make the experience any less dramatic because the consequences are extremely real. But he's prepared for it. He's done his due diligence. And I think that that's really where Chris McCandless teaches us a lesson about doing our homework beforehand. A theme that recurs through the, throughout this book is how heavily he relies on other people. A, a, a lot of his mishaps, misfortunes, I think would have been much worse if he hadn't made these. So he, he's, he's an incredibly kind of outgoing, almost like gregarious person yeah. at some points. He's, he's Charismatic, re- but genuine. Yeah, and he's reserved up until the point where he becomes the life of the party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he builds these relationships on his travels through the West that really become the foundation for his capability. People give him jackets and snowmobile suits and boats. I mean, it just food, companionship. If it weren't for the experience, the kindness of others, he would have been lost. He wouldn't have made it half as far as he had. Much of what he does, he can only do because he was helped by other people. And for somebody that wanted to be so alone in his adventures, he, he wasn't. He was not alone. But I don't think it's selfishness. I don't think that it's pure self-centeredness. I think, I think it's just naivete. I think that it was a blind spot. And at that age, with his great spiritual mission, he just didn't see it. He didn't see how much what he was able to do was because of other people. No man is an island. And if you look at the history, I mean, if you want to get back to the raw throb of human existence, in many ways, he he kind of demonstrates how far away from that we've gotten by what he does because human beings for pretty much ever and ever did not exist in isolation. He wouldn't have been out in the wilderness by himself. He would have been surrounded by his family, by his tribe. And as a community, they survived together. That's why human beings are so social, because it's imperative to our survival. We've always existed in tribal bands, and he misses that point entirely because he is a product of almost a pathologically individualistic society, where he goes into an environment that he is not prepared for because he's alone. And to a certain degree, he I think he realizes that at the end of his stay in the Alaska Absolutely. bush, because he... He says something like, I've never felt so lonely before in my life. And I think he feels isolated and alone. I think he knew that he wanted to do this by himself. He stepped into this wilderness or into this wild alone for a reason. He wanted that it just to be himself against this place. But at the end, I think he feels like he has succeeded with that. And he misses society. He misses companionship. All of his adventures before this are punctuated with with stays with people where he builds these incredibly intense relationships very quickly 
He has people that he he kind of opens himself up to. He's not a, a loner in the sense that he he can't stand companionship or society. He's a loner because he chooses to step away from it. But he often, he, and I don't know if he chooses to come back, but I think he feels that pull yeah. where he has to re-engage with companions, with tribe. He highlighted a passage from Tolstoy in one of the books that he had on the bus. And the passage that he highlighted reads like this. I have lived through much, and now I think I have found what is needed for happiness. A quiet, secluded life in the country, with a possibility of being useful to people to whom it is easy to do good, and who are not accustomed to have it done to them. Then work, which one hopes may be of some use. Then rest, nature, books, music, love for one's neighbor. Such is my idea of happiness. I I could write that on the wall at home. Read that every morning. And he went out, you know, in some ways he went out into the wild to find himself. And what he found instead was other people. And that he, he felt that draw to be of service to others. I think if he came back, he would have done some good for folks. Well, that's the thing. I think what I find is a disappointment here, or what kind of bothers me is that I think he had had this transformative experience. I think if he'd made it back to society, probably would have actually had an impact. Yeah. This is the kind of person who had enough drive, enough conviction, that he wouldn't have just like gone to law school and hung out a shingle. This is the kind of person that would have like gotten after it. Yeah. Like re- really pushed himself to the edge of how he could make a difference in other people's lives. It's a little sad to me that he didn't have that chance. I think that's that's a big portion of the tragedy. Yeah. He had that awareness. He had that transformation. And I think he, he had the capability. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He, he could throw himself at anything and come through. Almost. Yeah, true. He makes an annotation in the margins of one of his books, which is succinct. But I think the lesson that he comes to, the lesson that he was going to leave for, which was happiness only real when shared. A month after he died, Billy, his mother, sits at her dining room table, sifting through the pictorial record of Chris's final days. It is all she can do to force herself to examine the fuzzy snapshots. As she studies the pictures, she breaks down from time to time, weeping as only a mother who has outlived a child can weep betraying a sense of loss so huge and irreparable that the mind balks at taking its measure. Such bereavement, witnessed at close range, makes even the most eloquent apologia for high-risk activities ring fatuous and hollow. I just don't understand why he had to take those kinds of chances, Billy protests through her tears. I just don't understand it at all. One of the reasons may be that in our culture, in the U.S., we lack a rite of passage into manhood. We lack that crucible, the other side of which says, now you are a man. And if you look at his life and his age, he was right at that prime of figuring out what that meant to him. And I think that you see the desire for this in many young men in our country. I certainly felt the pull of it. Wanting to know when you transition from being a child being a boy 
to being a man. And we have all, you know, people have their own subjective definitions of what that means, that coming of age, right? You think of uh, J.D. Salinger's book, The Catcher in the Rye. That's a classic coming of age story. But there's a difference between you realizing that and society recognizing you as a man. And maybe for somebody that thinks in absolutist dichotomous principles, you are either a child or you are a man. And his whole journey was about finding that man in himself. You see a lot of guy. I mean, Sebastian Younger says this, where he wanted this. And so he went off to war. He thought that war would make a man of him. And so he became a war journalist. And you see plenty of guys, you know, enlist when they're 18 years old. Same, same thing. I mean, I, I wanted to become a man, but there's no officially sanctioned ceremony for that for us. There's nothing that says, now you are a man. As an example of traditional manhood rights, there are many globally. They usually revolve around enduring some kind of pain. Understanding, especially in warrior cultures, that that will be a big part of your life. And that that is what is expected of you. I pulled one example. This is actually taken from the uh, the Art of Manliness website. But he describes here one particular Native American tribe and their rite of passage into manhood. And I just want to read it as a comparison for what we may have lost in our culture. Native American tribes each had their own unique coming-of-age rituals for the men in the tribe. But few were as intense as that of the Mandans. Before his rite of passage, a Mandan boy fasted for three days to cleanse his body of impurities. Then, on the day of the ritual, elders of the tribe would pierce the boy's chest, shoulder, and back muscles with large wooden splints. Ropes, which extended from the roof of a hut, were then attached to the splints, and the young man was winched up into the air, his whole body weight suspended from the ropes. Despite the pain, the boy was not to cry out. While hanging in the air, more splints were hammered through his arms and legs. Skulls of his dead grandfather and other ancestors were placed on the ends of the splints. Eventually, the young man fainted from the loss of blood and the sheer pain of the torture. When the elders were sure he was unconscious, he was lowered down and the ropes were removed. Yet the splints were left in place. When the young man recovered consciousness, he offered his left pinky to the tribal elders to be sacrificed. He placed the finger on a block and had it swiftly chopped off. This was a gift to the gods and would enable the young man to become a powerful hunter. Finally, the young man ran inside a ring where his fellow villagers had gathered. As he ran, the villagers reached out and grabbed the still-embedded splints, ripping them free. The splints weren't allowed to be pulled out the way they had been hammered in, but had to be torn out in the opposite direction, causing the young man even greater pain and worse wounds. This concluded the day's ceremony, and the boy was now a man. I feel like I could do without that. (laughs) So do I. But I wonder, isn't that the point? Is I. Maybe I've become soft. Maybe this cushy life of mine has not well prepared me for endurance. And obviously this is an extreme example. But if you have, and there are, like I said, many different types of this kind of intense violent hazing that occurs in in the ritualistic rites of of passage into manhood 
in different cultures, but we don't have anything like this. I think part of that is that there is, there can be a loss of purpose in that transition from boyhood to manhood. I think this, this culture or in a warrior culture, you talk about maybe like a Spartan culture, you have a transition to purpose where there has to be some endurance. There has to be some physical capability. There has to be some tolerance for pain, hardship. And whereas that may not be transitional to our current place in society, I think that we could find some place where there is some service, some utility for someone in society. And I don't know if going to college for four years is that for everyone. I think about what national service is in terms of looking at cultures that have mandated service, you know, modern European cultures that still have mandated service. And I think it would be transformative for us as a nation if we had not necessarily mandated military service, but some sort of public service where you did military or civilian conservation corps or teach for America or worked in a health clinic or something that gave back to the society to which you were about to enter. It gave you a skill, an ability. It gave you a reference that there was something greater than you, but also gave you an ability to define yourself within that and to step up above that when you were done. I don't think that's a socialist ideal. It's not an all striving for one. It's a, I think it's defining yourself and helping you transition, but also showing that you giving yourself to something else is a way to show that maturity, to show that transition. This person was in this description, this boy turning into a man. It's not for him. It's for his place in that tribe. Mm -hmm. It's for his place in that culture. And it proves that he is worthy of that ascendance. Yeah. So how do you prove that you are worthy to, to become a member of your society? It's through that transition into manhood. And of course, in a society like the one that we have, perhaps one of the unfortunate pieces is that you could go through this crucible and sacrifice and prove yourself worthy. But worthy of what? What tribe do we have on the other side of the crucible? What what tribe did Christopher McCandless belong to? And and I would like to think ours. We create our groups around us because well we have the freedom to do so. But for somebody that is looking for they know not what and they want to become worthy of a group that they don't even know if it exists, that could be emotionally very difficult. I think in a lot of ways, the reason that I keep returning to the Chris McCandless story in my life is because I look at his life as instructional and inspirational, but mostly as a reprobation against my own. There was a quote that somebody said about him that I think just hits the nail on the head. They said, unlike most of us, he was the sort of person who insisted on living out his beliefs. And I think of every standard that I've had, every belief, every virtue that I've set for myself or held to be important. And then I think about the number of times I've compromised. 
I think about the number of times I haven't lived up to those expectations. I think every day we allow some of the gray to seep into our lives. And some of that is just understanding that that that's a part of life. But I think that there is, uh, it's hard not to respect a man who just sees things and lives his life the far edges of black and white. I think Rousseau said that man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. And I think that Chris McCandless refused to wear his. One of the things that I find about nature is that it has this ability to provoke these almost transcendental experiences. And in the way that Chris McCandless wrote, in the authors that he glorified, Thoreau especially, the transcendentalism is quite prescient in those pieces. And in transcendentalism, the way that I'm talking about it, is this, this sense of oneness with nature around you. And this is not some frou-frou bullshit. It's a legitimate change in your neurochemistry that occurs where you, the sense of self is repressed and you really do feel a sort of non-duality with the environment around you. And there have been studies that have shown that this sense of awe and the sense of transcendence can actually be encouraged and invoked by being in a natural woodland environment where being in a forest and looking up at the trees can invoke this transcendent experience. And I think that that's what Chris McCandless would, that's what he kept experiencing. He was having these transcendental moments and he was chasing after them, almost like somebody looking for their high, you know, he's always going after these things. The, the aesthetic voyager, you know, he is, he is looking for the beauty in everything throughout his travels places himself into these positions that I think it's impossible not to just see the wondrous beauty in the landscape, in the power of a storm on the Baja, California, the power of a river as it rolls through a gorge, the beauty of a sunset, the triumph of finding food. I think he sees that he sees that beauty in everything that he does outside. And, and I think he finds more satisfaction in that than he does often in what we would consider a day-to-day life. But of course, the unfortunate piece is that he can't reconcile his dichotomous thinking, his absolutist right and wrong, black and white thinking with really the high that he's chasing, that essence of existence experienced through non-duality. So in many ways, his rational mind trying to set him up for these experiences prevents him from achieving the very states that he's looking for. And if you're curious to know a little bit more about this, this state of spiritual transcendence, it's interesting because the there is a paucity of research in this area as far as where the seat of human spirituality is. But we have pretty firmly identified that the seat of the self, your concept of being distinct from others, is located in your right parietal lobe. So if you take your right hand and you put it on top of your head, and then you just shift it to the right of midline, you're you're in the area where your sense of being distinct from other, just the world around you, sits. And they found that in meditative practices, 
in uh, the Buddhist tradition, for example, when people attain a state where they feel that oneness with the world around them, activity in the right parietal lobe is down-regulated and the frontal lobe is up-regulated. So they just found that when that right parietal area was basically shut off, your sense of being separate from the world around you disappears. And it's interesting to consider that there's a neuroanatomical basis for not only your sense of self, but for these spiritual experiences that occur, that what we're really trying to do is to shut down a part of our brain that's screaming self, 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 (laughs) and make it a little quieter and just have it be a small self. And in fact, that's what they call it in some of the pieces of literature is finding that that small self and an awe for the world around you. To close out, I think I can't do a better job than some of the final words from the book End of the Wild. On August 12th, he wrote what would prove to be the final words in his journal. Beautiful blueberries. From August 13th through 18th, His journal records nothing but a tally of the days. At some point during the week, he tore the final page from Louis L'Amour's memoir, Education of a Wandering Man. On one side of the page were some lines L'Amour had quoted from Robinson Jeffers' poem, Wise Men in Their Bad Hours. Death's a fierce meadowlark, but to die having made something more equal to the centuries than muscle and bone is mostly to shed weakness. The mountains are dead stone. The people admire or hate their stature, their insolent quietness. The mountains are not softened or troubled, and a few dead men's thoughts have the same temper. On the other side of the page, which was blank, McCandless penned a brief adios. I have had a happy life, and thank the Lord. Goodbye, and may God bless all. Then he crawled into the sleeping bag his mother had soon for him and slipped in unconsciousness. He probably died on August 18th, 112 days after he walked into the wild, 19 days before six Alaskans would happen across the bus and discover his body inside. One of his last acts was to take a picture of himself, standing near the bus under the high Alaska sky, one hand holding his final note toward the camera lens the other raised in a brave, beatific farewell. His face is horribly emaciated, almost skeletal. But if he pitied himself in those last difficult hours, because he was so young, because he was alone, because his body had betrayed him and his will had let him down, it's not apparent from the photograph. He is smiling in the picture, and there is no mistaking the look in his eyes. Chris McCandless was at peace, serene as a monk, gone to God. What I take away from the story of Chris McCandless, the reason why I respect him, it's not because he had the courage to die. It's because he had the courage to live. And that, I think, is the takeaway from all of it. And I want to share with you the advice that he gave to his friend in a letter because it serves for me as a call to be better, as an instruction to live, not just survive. I think you really should make a radical change in your lifestyle. 
and begin to boldly do things which you may have previously never thought of doing, or been too hesitant to attempt. So many people live within unhappy circumstances, and yet will not take the initiative to change their situation, because they are conditioned to a life of security, conformity, and conservatism, all of which may appear to give one peace of mind, but in reality, nothing is more damaging to the adventurous spirit within a man than a secure future. The very basic core of a man's living spirit is his passion for adventure. The joy of life comes from our encounters with new experiences, and hence, there is no greater joy than to have an endlessly changing horizon, for each day to have a new and different sun. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. You can review this podcast on iTunes, subscribe, whatever you'd like to do. And if you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let us know. I want to mention that we post all the references in the show notes. So if I mention a study or a book or really any outside sources, you can take a look at those and explore the topics more thoroughly if you'd like. And for today's podcast, I've posted coordinates for the bus along with a marked topographic map of its location. I think it does a good job of providing some context, some setting for this story. Now, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, there are a couple different ways you can do it. First, if you'd like to get the books we talk about for yourself, you can access the Lycos reading list the Lycos Designs website, which is www.lycosdesigns.com. That's L-Y-K-O-S. We'll post links to the books on Amazon, and going through us to get your books is a great way to support the podcast. I do want to mention that we don't do the podcast to market Lycos Designs clothing. But in this particular book, he has this one habit that I think is really cool and action actually happens to correlate with something that, that we do. He does a lot of geocaching where he'll bury his shit before he heads into a town because he sleeps like under freeways and stuff like that. So he doesn't want to get rolled up and get his money taken away from him. So he'll have these little stashes of his stuff. And sometimes he'll bury his entire backpack full of things. And we kind of came up with this concept. We thought it'd be cool. If you're going to get a discount on Lycos Designs Clothing, we want you to earn it. So we have discount codes hidden out amongst the world. And we will occasionally post MGRS coordinates for you to go out and get you some if you're uh, if you're feeling adventurous. We're going to have to do a whole episode on geocaching because shit like that is just, it's fun. <laughs> How to store things for long-term use. But if you want to know more about what we do as a company and the kind of gear and clothing that we make, please feel free to check out the website and and see what's there. And furthering the idea of community, you can connect with us on Instagram at Lycos Designs, Facebook, or the Lycos Designs website. I personally read all the feedback that gets sent to us. So if you have something that you'd like to add to the dialogue, please know that it, it will be heard. All right, Matt, final takeaways. This is a book worth reading. It's a book worth reading again. I said I'd had a changing relationship with it over the years. I think it helped me gain some perspective on myself. And I appreciated reading through it again this time because I think that it helped me to focus on some of the things that I find are important in my own life. And sometimes it helps to understand which things in life you can compromise on. How sometimes it's okay to just stay resolute to your beliefs. Yeah. No matter what beliefs you're chasing, no matter what you're staying resolute to, I'd like to offer you this advice. Go outside, 
Stay there and find your inner wolf. Who the fuck's Greg Daniels? James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) When I was in the Alaskan bush, I saw a bear. And then I ate its face. (laughs) I took its wife as my mate. (laughs) We have several lovely children.